morning we're going to be continuing our discussion of how to live in a culture that is completely against you. In the very first week, and I mentioned again last week, but we're living in a culture that wants to force all of us into conformity with its ideals. That it literally wants to brainwash everyone. In my Wednesday night study, we were looking this week, it's a a book that compares our biblical worldview of the body to the world's view of the body and how using our bodies the way God created them actually is uplifting, whereas the world's view makes the body pretty much worthless. But in this book, she was talking about the transgender agenda. That got me tripped up. But yeah, I mean, you're going through this and she's quoting all of these things and has all of these things about where the world is at. And it was talking about how, and now I'm blanking on the name of it, there is an organization out there that basically what they say controls what is taught in our education system. And this group has determined that there, there could be any number of genders and that it's fluid. And she went on to talk about interviewing a professor at a college who said that it's become so fluid that a, a student could identify as a he for his morning class, a she at lunch, and who knows what in the afternoon. And it's happening because this is being taught to children and reinforced and reinforced and proposed by the media, and all of these things are changing the mind of this young generation. Some of these lies they're telling are so ridiculous that I can't believe anyone could fall into this, but they are. Because our culture is driving it. And as believers in Jesus Christ and people who cherish his word, we know these things are wrong. And so again, how do we face them? We began last week talking about fear. There can be real fear standing up to the overwhelming tide. There's something else we need to be wary of, though, and that is just doing what's easy. I was thinking about that. I mean, when God gave the commandments to the Israelites in the desert, his first commandment was, thou shalt not have any other gods before me. And he continually warned them before they went into the promised land not to worship the gods of the peoples around them. We studied the book of Judges. What happened? They worshiped the gods around them. And I think the interesting thing about that is they were conquering the promised land. It's not like they went in there like they were in Egypt and they were a subjugated people. They were conquering these cities. They were driving these people out. And yet the ones they didn't, these small groups, they fell into their worship. You see, maybe they saw what they were worshiping and thought, well, their crops are growing better. Maybe, maybe there's something to that. I mean, these people knew the power of their God, and yet they fell into this. It was easy. Something in their human hearts desired what these other people were worshiping. We looked at several times Joshua's statement at the end of his book. Before his death, Joshua challenged the people to choose this day whom you will worship. 
And he said, as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. And the people all said they would too, but they fell apart. And so we need to look at that and know that we're people just like they were. And so when we have that question put to us every day, choose whom you will worship. Are we choosing what's easy? Are we choosing what doesn't make us afraid? Or are we choosing to worship the almighty God of the universe? And it's not always easy. It can be a tough choice to make. But how do we do it? And what pleases God for a people in the midst of a corrupt culture? So far, we've looked at how you do it. You draw a line in the sand. You know God's word, his will, his commandments, and you don't break it. And then you know who he is and what his plan is and that he wins. And no matter what you face and how afraid you are, he is never afraid. And you let that be your strength. And through those two things, it brings us to today. And our big idea today is what pleases God is when you let his light shine through you. Let God's light shine through you. And we see a powerful story of that in Daniel 3. So we begin, we'll look at verses 1 through 7, and we'll see how they are forced to worship. I'll go ahead and read verses 1 through 7. It says, Nebuchadnezzar, the king, made an image of gold, the height of which was 60 cubits, and its width six cubits. And he set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then Nebuchadnezzar, the king, sent word to assemble the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces were assembled for the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up, and they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, Do you command, or to you the command is given, O peoples, nations, and men of every language, that at the moment you hear the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trijon, psaltery, bagpipe, and all kinds of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king has set up. But whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into the midst of a furnace blazing, of blazing fire. Therefore, at that time, when all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trijon, psaltery, bagpipe, and all kinds of music, all the peoples, nations, and men of every language fell down and worshipped the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. So we see that the king... It's interesting, we're coming right out of the chapter, and we don't have an exact timeline, but this takes place sometime after Daniel interpreted, or revealed his dream and interpreted it. And in the stream, there's this statue. And Daniel tells him, Nebuchadnezzar, your kingdom, you are the head of gold. 
Now, as we discussed, God had given Nebuchadnezzar rule over all the earth. Even the animals were subject to him. As we know, as people, especially for people without God, power brings ego. And so can you imagine the ego of Nebuchadnezzar? The whole world... The whole world would have trembled at him. And he hears in this dream that he is the head of gold. And so after that, he's going to make his own statue, his own monument. The text doesn't tell us exactly what it was. Scholars don't think it would have been a statue of himself because they can't find any evidence in that region of rulers making statues of themselves. It could have been a human like it was in Daniel's interpretation of the prophecy dream. It could have been a human-animal mixed. Statues like that have been found in both. Many people think it was an obelisk like our Washington Monument. And its dimensions there change cubits into feet, something we know. It was about 99 feet tall and 9 feet across. This is a big statue. This is a 10-story building. I'm not sure how far you have to go from here to find a 10-story building, but <laughs> it's, a, it's not a skyscraper in New York, but this is tall. And he sets this up and from what they found, it was common for them, if it was a statue of gold, it would have been a wooden frame that would have been covered in gold. And the, the Greek historian Herodotus talked about one that was around at his time that was much smaller than Nebuchadnezzar's here, and it took 22 tons of gold to coat it. And so if Nebuchadnezzar's was, again, 30% larger, and we're talking an enormous amount of gold, on this statue. And I think what he's saying here in this is, yes, your God says that I am the head of gold and there will be this kingdom and this kingdom and this kingdom and this kingdom after me and then the stone... Well, how about no? How about just all gold? I am so great that nothing comes after me. He's establishing his dominance and what he sees as the forever reign of his kingdom and his line. And so he calls all these rulers. Daniel lists all these men there. These, everyone who was important was called to come before this statue and they were forced to bow down. It's interesting to note here that they were, as Babylonians, they were a polytheistic people. They worshipped lots of different gods. But for them... If they conquered a people, they would have required those people to, I mean, you can go ahead and worship your God, but you're going to worship ours too, because obviously our God is greater than yours because we conquered you. We looked at that in the first chapter and we saw that when they conquered Jerusalem, they took things out of the temple and they put it in the temple of Nebo because it was Nebo who had given them victory over Yahweh when in reality it was Yahweh allowing the Babylonians to come in and conquer to punish Israel. But in their mind, it was their God who had given them the victory. And so for a conquered people, 
you can go ahead and worship who you want to worship, but you are going to worship our God. They require them to acknowledge the greatness of their God. And so Nebuchadnezzar is, is not demanding their religious point of view, but a refusal would appear as opposition to him because they were refusing his great God. And so what he's basically telling them here is, I have set this up. This is a monument to my greatness, my kingdom. It's not going away. There is no kingdom after me, and you will bow down or else. You will bow down or else. Does that sound like our culture today? You will get in line with what is going on or else. I mean, what have we set up as our God today? Basically, sin. And because sin has become the God of our culture, we've become a culture of acceptance because we wouldn't want anyone to be told that what they enjoy or they desire is a sin. And so we have this culture of acceptance. And if you don't fall in line, what happens? You get canceled. The people that take part in this gladly call it a cancel culture. It's really interesting. I mean, there are some people who have done despicable things, and it's good the world knows about them. But instead of being able to make our own choice of whether or not we want to support these people, we are told, you will no longer support this person. But one of the most interesting ones, I remember reading about it some time ago, and I just find it flabbergasting, for lack of a better word, is what has happened to the author J.K. Rowling. She is not a conservative person. For those of you who don't know, I've never read them, but she's the author of the Harry Potter books. Very, very wealthy woman. Supporter of the LGBTQ agenda and all these other things. But she has now been canceled, quote-unquote, for a stance she took read from this article. It says, the multimillionaire took to Twitter in support of a woman with history of making comments seen to be transphobic. This woman's name is Maya Forstater. She's a British researcher who was fired from her job at a nonprofit after she tweeted a series of statements about proposed changes to the UK's Gender Recognition Act, which, has, which have been labeled as transphobic. So basically what happened is she's a feminist and took offense to men saying they're women and the other way around and basically said that, no, women are women and men are men. And so she got canceled and because J.K. Rowling supported her, she got canceled. It's interesting, Rowling's uh, response, she said, dress however you please, call yourself whatever you like, sleep with any consenting adult who have you, Live your best life in peace and security, but force women out of their jobs for stating sex is real? I mean, she was just blown away. Did anything about her statement there sound conservative? She's as liberal as it gets. And yet she wasn't falling right in line with the agenda, and so we're done with you. The interesting thing to me is, is for us, we can read something like that and go, Man, if they're willing to cancel her, what are they going to do to someone like me? 
It's bow down or else. And we are very quickly getting there. And what do we do when we very soon could be there? To where if I'm up here preaching a message like this, I could be cited for a hate crime. And all of you labeled as hateful. Do we bow down? Or do we face the or else? We may not be facing a fiery furnace or even the loss of our lives, but our lives certainly could get changed and become unrecognizable with the culture around us putting pressure on our world. Move into the second part, we'll see charges are presented and Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego's response. Verse 8 says, For this reason at that time certain Chaldeans came forward and brought charges against the Jews. Other translations will say sorcerers or astrologers. This, these were nobles. And that's important to realize here because these aren't people that are just trying to do the right thing, saying, you know, coming to the king, bringing this forward. They, they wanted to benefit from this. They wanted to knock these three Jewish guys out of the way so maybe they could take their place. They wanted to profit from them going down. Look at verses 9 through 12. They responded and said to Nebuchadnezzar the king, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, the flute, the lyre, the trigon, the psaltery, and the bagpipe, and all kinds of music is to fall down and worship the golden image. But whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the administration of the province of Babylon, namely Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have disregarded you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image which you have set up. So this charge is brought forth and it was regarding, it was for them disregarding the king's command of bowing down. These men aren't pledging allegiance to you because they refuse to fall on their face and worship your image. And this is proof that these three Jewish men, they don't worship your gods either. Your God conquered theirs and they don't, they don't have the respect to worship him. They're not on board with your agenda, king. Even though Daniel, their companion, had been the ones who reveal the king's dream and interpret it and bring peace to his mind, and they had shown their worthiness throughout their training that they were head and shoulders above everyone else, they weren't with the program. You got to get rid of these guys. They're not on board. Again, think back to what we just looked at with J.K. Rowling. I mean, she's liberal. She supports all these things financially and with her words, and yet she supports one viewpoint that isn't directly in line, and it's you're canceled. And for these men, getting canceled was a severe consequence. It's to get thrown into a fiery furnace. But for these three men, I mean, again, they're coming out of a culture that was conquered because they were worshiping idols. They weren't. Their, their culture in Israel 
were worshiping idols and God allows them to be conquered. And then, so for most of their countrymen, when they get to Babylon, it's now you're going to worship these idols and they all went, sure. In Deuteronomy 4, even Moses predicted that they would be scattered and they would worship the gods of the places they went. And that's what was going on, but not for these three. They were diligent in following the law. For them, death was preferable to disobedience. Nebuchadnezzar believed his gods were responsible for his success. And to disregard them was to disregard him. And so they are going to face that consequence. It is interesting here, the question is raised, why wasn't Daniel accused? We cannot obviously assume that he fell in line and bowed down and worshipped. There could be any number of reasons, but Daniel doesn't tell us when he wrote it. He could have been on assignment somewhere else. He could have been in such a lofty position that the king didn't force him to do this. We don't know exactly why. But we know his dedication to the Lord and his law, which we saw in the first chapter, and we can assume that that continued. But his three companions here are put to the test. Continue in verse 13 through 15. Then Nebuchadnezzar in rage and anger gave orders to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Then these men were brought before the king. Nebuchadnezzar responded and said to them, is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready at the moment to hear the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trijan, psaltery, and bagpipe, and all kinds of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made, very well. But if you do not worship, you will immediately be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. And what God is there who can deliver you out of my hands? I mean, he's mad. <laughs> Again. This man is the most powerful man on earth. And he has an ego to match. And he has given these three men important jobs. These conquered men. And even in his anger though, he's still willing to give them a second chance. But he is fired up. It's like having... You know, you tell your child to do something and they, they turn right around and, or don't do something, you know, don't touch that. And like, <laughs> I feed you, I clothe you, you're on this earth because of me. And you have to take a moment and breathe. <laughs> to him, this is, they are alive, they are in their position, they are who they are, all because of him. In reality, it was because of God, but in his eyes, it was because of him. And so, how dare you? Verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, 
that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. They had already drawn their line. And it didn't matter what the consequence was, they weren't going to cross it. In chapter 1, we saw for Daniel, it was a hypothetical consequence that if he refused to eat this food that was put before him, he could face the wrath of the king. And if God hadn't intervened, he probably would have. But here, for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, it isn't a possibility. It is the king himself saying, do it or you're in the fire. And there is no God that can save you. And they say, oh yes, there is. We know our line, we're not crossing it, and our God isn't afraid of you or your fire. They had no question about God's ability to save them. And their faith should be an inspiration to us. Again, none of us is facing a fiery furnace. None of us is facing a certain death by standing up for God. And yet it's a challenge. But for these young, young men, they could look at the furnace and the most powerful man on earth and go, our God is greater. This is what he says, we're not doing that. He can save us. For them, the will and the glory of Yahweh meant more than their own lives. But they had faith that he could save them. But even if it didn't, it was his will that was more important than breaking his commandments. In our last section, in verse 19 through the end of the chapter, we see God's deliverance and how that changes hearts. So verses 19 through 23. But Nebuchadnezzar was filled with wrath and his facial expression was altered towards Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He answered by giving orders to heat the furnace seven times more than it was usually heated. And he commanded certain valiant warriors who were in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in order to cast them into the furnace of blazing fire. These men were tied up in their trousers, their coats, their caps, and their other clothes and were cast into the midst of the furnace of blazing fire. For this reason, because the king's command was urgent and the furnace had been made extremely hot, the flame of fire slew those men who carried up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Their determination to withhold their allegiance, again, just raises up this rage within the king. He was the most powerful man in the world. Who are you to defy me? And he ordered the furnace to be heated seven times hotter. Now, seven times hotter is a proverbial expression for much more in many passages. I would guess that it has the same meaning here. I, I don't think their furnace had a, a temperature gauge on it that they could have known, okay, it's, it's now exactly seven times hotter. But they got it really, really hot. Have you ever been near a fire that's really, really hot? I, uh, when I was in college, I, I worked at a funeral home near the mortuary school. And my boss invited me one day. He said, do you want to go with me? I had, he had this cousin who had a 
a farm out in the country about an hour away and the little farmhouse no one had lived in it for 10 years and they were letting the fire department department do a controlled burn and he said you want to go watch i said sure so we went out there it was really interesting they would set a fire inside all the firefighters would go in they put out the fire they come back out they'd set a fire somewhere else they'd go in put it out come back out and after doing this a whole bunch of times they just lit the whole thing up and it was like 15 degrees with a light rain or sleet and uh, some snow and we're standing out there I was freezing all morning I had my big heavy coat on all my warm clothes hat gloves everything and I'd been freezing all morning and when they lit it up we moved to the other side of the road from the farmhouse and I had to unzip my coat and take my the flames were so hot from that far away when that whole house was ablaze and so we see that's how hot this fire is that even the men who threw them in could not survive the experience. Nebuchadnezzar wanted no doubt. He wanted to make an example of them. His anger was so high that get it so hot that no one could survive. Not that you could survive a regular furnace, but this one was seven times hotter or much, much hotter. But then we see what happens in 24 and 25. The Nebuchadnezzar, the king, was astounded and stood up in haste and said to his high officials, was it not three men we cast into the midst? Oh, I jumped ahead. Oh, no, I, I didn't. I'm sorry. But these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell into the midst of the furnace of blazing fire, still tied up. Okay, here's 24. Then Nebuchadnezzar, the king, was astounded and stood up in haste. And he said to his high officials, Was it not three men we cast into the midst of the fire? And they replied to the king, Certainly, O king. He said, Look, I see four men loosed and walking about in the midst of the fire without harm. And the appearance of the fourth is like the son of the gods. You can imagine this. When you're really, really angry... And someone gets what's coming to them. There's something within our sinful, selfish nature that, that makes us feel good. And that's what Nebuchadnezzar was expecting here. He, he wanted to watch these men be thrown in and get what was coming to them. Be the example to everyone else. You don't cross me. And so he's watching. And he sees his own men get killed by these flames. And then as they're in this furnace... He not only sees them untied and walking around like it's no big deal, but there is a fourth one in there who looks like the son of the gods. Now our text doesn't tell us if this is an angel or if this is the angel of the Lord. I do believe this is the pre-incarnate Christ who has come to save them, deliver them. But what's really interesting here, what we need to remember in our lives is Jesus did not come and save them out of the fire. He saved them in it. He didn't keep them from being thrown in. He didn't put the fire out. He saved them in the midst of the fire. That's power. Continue in verse 26. The Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the furnace of blazing fire 
And he responded and said, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, come out, you servants of the Most High God, come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the midst of the fire. The satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's high officials gathered around and saw in regard to the men that the fire had no effect on the bodies of these men, nor was the hair of their heads singed, nor were their trousers damaged, nor had the smell of fire even come upon them. I mean, this is God's power. I had a roommate in college that loved to go camping, and we would go out on weekends and camp. And there was one time it was hot and it was humid, and he brought a little bottle of fuel. It had rained, and so it was hard to get the fire started. He took this little bottle of fuel he had with him, and he poured some on the wood, and then he couldn't find his lighter. And by the time he got back with his lighter and lit the fire, the fumes had saturated into the humid air. I'd never seen anything like it. I was standing about 10 feet away, and Dave lit this fire, and he literally was engulfed in a fireball. It only lasted like that. But by the time it ended, his eyebrows were almost completely gone. All of his hair stunk. The hair on his arms was almost all gone. And that was that. It was a really quick, just... Have you ever been camping and thrown a coat, you know, in a bag and six months later if you pull that coat out of the bag, everything that was in there with it will stink like fire, like smoke. And yet these men come out, I mean they should have been incinerated instantly and yet they're able to walk around in there and they come out and you can't even tell they were in there. That is the power of our God. And we look at the power of letting God's light shine through us, letting him use us trusting in him and seeing his power. You see the heart of Nebuchadnezzar, the most powerful man in the world, this enormous ego, this person who was just enraged a moment ago, declared their God to be the most high. Now with Nebuchadnezzar, it's a constant up and down. This isn't like a forever thing with him. Obviously in the last chapter, he gave praise to Daniel's God because his ability to reveal and interpret the dream. Here he gives praise, saving them, and then God's going to have to change him into a deranged wild beast to get him to finally humble himself. But still, it's an amazing turnabout. You can think of people in your life or people you know or even some celebrity that just seems to be whacked out in some self-glorifying religion or humanism or whatever and think, man, that person could never get saved. But when we allow the power of God to show through our lives and people take notice, it can change a heart. As we live in this culture that is so against us, read this story. Think about these young men. They drew their line They had faith in their God. And you see Nebuchadnezzar's heart just do a 180. Servants of the Most High God. He'll continue, verse 28. Nebuchadnezzar responded and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, 
who put their trust in him, violating the king's command, and yielded up their bodies so as to not serve or worship any god except for their own. It is their faith that he saw and the power of their god that turned his heart. Therefore I make a decree that any people, nation, or tongue that speaks anything offensive against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb, and their house is reduced to rubbish heap, inasmuch as there is no other god who is able to deliver in this way. Then the king caused Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to prosper in the province of Babylon. Their god saved them from an unsavable situation. But really, it was their faith and obedience that allowed God to shine his light out. And that needs to be a reminder to all of us. As we look at this world around us, how could I ever make an impact? Stay faithful. Stay obedient. Trust in God. Let his light shine through you. We read Jesus' words earlier in Matthew 5. We're the salt of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. On Monday this week, I drove to Utah with my daughter Julia, and it was daytime when we went over, and the sun had set when we were coming back, and we were on, it was Route 98, coming down from Page towards Cayenta area. And I had seen signs during the day for a town and I just figured it was off somewhere in the distance. But coming back at night, you could see the lights of all the houses on the hills around us. The town was right there. I had no idea during the day. You can't hide a city on a hill. That light shining through us is supposed to light the world. And how we practically do that, how we live this out, I think some time ago we looked at Romans 12. I want to go back there. just the first two verses, Romans 12, 1 and 2. As Paul begins this topic of service, he says, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. So knowing this, and knowing that we're to be the light, that we're to present our bodies, that where does that leave us? I think in verse 2 there, that is a, an explanation of how you're to do verse 1. How do I present my body? Well, don't be transformed by the world around you. Or don't be conformed to it. Don't become like everyone else, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Let God change who you are to be more like him. Paul doesn't say, change everything around you to be like you. He says, no. You be worried about you. I will say, as Americans, I mean, we're in a, an interesting position where we seem to be losing our rights and losing... I'm worried about our religious liberties. And I'm not saying we shouldn't fight to protect them, but what we should be most worried about is how am I letting God influence the world around me? 
was talking about this a couple weeks ago with one of you. And so yeah, I mean, our responsibility is to have an impact on those that God puts in our life. And if we do that, it is their job in turn to have an impact on others and their job in turn to have an impact on others. It's not my job to change the whole world. It's my job to go there for and make disciples. And it's those disciples' job to make disciples. The person I was talking to jokingly said, it's God's pyramid scheme. But it is, and that's the way it's worked since, since Christ left and gave that commandment. And that's how the gospel spread and how the church grew. Not by changing the world around them, but by making disciples, changing people, letting God be the light through them and having other people see it. And like Nebuchadnezzar go, who is this God that you worship? Because I want some of that. You think of the lasting impact that a life for God can have. This same person I was talking to shared a story with me that I had never heard, or if I had, I'd forgotten it. But I thought it was really interesting. I'm going to read you this. It says, did you know that a Bible verse once helped save the British Army? Up until the 20th century, nearly the entire English-speaking world used the King James translation of the Bible. We all shared a common text. People were also more biblically literate than most are today, so if you quoted a Bible verse, people would usually recognize the reference. Bible stories like those in the book of Daniel were very familiar. He says, I wrote about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in my last two posts. These young men were given a choice. They could bow to a pagan idol, or they could be thrown in a fiery furnace. They courageously chose to face the furnace rather than disobey God's commands. I love the way the King James Bible puts their answers to the king. Our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of thine hand, O king. But if not... Let it be known unto thee, O king, that we will not serve thy gods, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. But if not. What a poignant phrase. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were resolved to obey God, whether or not he chose to save them. They knew he wasn't obligated to help them. Well, in the summer of 1940, more than 350,000 soldiers, most of them British, were trapped at Dunkirk. The German forces were on their way, and they had the capacity to wipe out the British expeditionary force. When it seemed certain that the Allied forces at Dunkirk were about to be massacred, a British naval officer cabled just three words back to London. But if not... But if not, these words were instantly recognizable by the people who were accustomed to hearing the scriptures read in church. They knew the story told in the book of Daniel, and the message in those little words was clear. The situation was desperate. The allied forces were trapped. It would take a miracle to save them, but they were determined not to give in. One simple three-word phrase communicated all of that. For some reason, people are still not sure why, 
The Axis power hesitated. They backed off briefly, and that's what's known as the miracle of Dunkirk. That's what took place. British families and fishermen heard about the poignant telegraphed cry for help, and they answered. They answered with merchant marine boats, with pleasure cruisers, and even small fishing boats. By a miracle, they evacuated more than 338,000 soldiers and took them to safety. Do you think when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego took that stand against Nebuchadnezzar, they knew God could save them. They didn't know whether or not he would. But it didn't matter. But do you think that they went into this knowing, hey, God is going to save us, and immediately Nebuchadnezzar is going to say, you worship the Most High God. Anyone who says anything bad against your God is going to be torn limb from limb. I don't think, that's not why they did it. But that was the result that God worked out. And what I think is so fascinating is that it would have been, this happened in 580, it's like 2,600 years later, that story still had an impact. That their faith was so impactful and the story so well known that just saying three words organized this huge rescue effort. I don't know what we will face in our lifetimes. I don't know what challenges are ahead of us, what God is going to allow to happen before he comes back. But know this, that by doing this, by living in this culture, we can perhaps have a much greater influence than we ever could in a culture that is seemingly pro-God. That we have this opportunity to have our faith in God, to know his commands, to take that stand, and to let his light shine through us. So as you're faced with these challenges, when you hear these things happening, we seem to be at this point still somewhat in a bubble here of conservative values. But I mean, you read about what's happening in other places. I mean, people being fired from their jobs of over 30 years because they refused to use made-up pronouns for people. I mean, these things are coming. And do you take your stand and do it in love and let God's light shine through you, or do you fall in and conform? No one's going to remember you if you fall in and conform. But if you stand out, God can shine through you. Would you pray with me?